God chose the leper when I was bad sin. God chose to die for me. Boom, five, eight. God chose the leper when I was bad sin. God chose to die for me. Boom, five, eight. God chose the leper. Chose the leper. God chose the leper. Chose the leper. God chose the leper. Boom, five. God chose a leper when I was bad sin. God chose to die for me. Boom, five, eight. God chose a leper when I was bad sin. God chose to die for me. Boom, five, eight. God chose a leper. Chose a leper. God chose a leper. Chose a leper. God chose a leper. Boom, five, eight. All right, let's get it. Good morning, everybody. How you doing? Let me know in the chat where you're watching from. Maybe what time it is, where you're from. And we're going to get right into it. Today we're talking about 1 John chapter 5. Um, talks about the sin that leads to death. What the heck is that? And then there's a the sin that doesn't lead to death. What is that? And I think we're going to better understand that today um, as we jump into 1 John 5. So this is the passage we're looking at. And we're going to look at the surrounding verses, okay? But... Before we get to the whole chapter, let me read to you the verse that is in question. Mainly, it's 16 right here. 1 John 5, 16, it says, Look, if anyone sees his brother committing a sin that does not lead to death, he shall ask. God will give him life. To those who commit sins that do not lead to death. There is sin that leads to death. So there's two categories for John. As he closes out his letter, two categories, sin that does lead to death, sin that does not lead to death. What kind of death is in mind here? Is it physical? Is it spiritual? Um, and he goes, I don't say that one should pray for that, the sin that leads to death. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is sin that does not lead to death. What do we do with that? Well... We read the entire chapter as a unit. How about that? So we read this literary unit and we make sense of what John is saying. So if you go back to the first verse of chapter 5, this is how John essentially begins to end his letter. It says, Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. Everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of Him. Now, the last thing John talked about was how the commandment of God is to love God and love people. That is the sum of the law and the prophets. That is the main command God gives to humanity is to love. Now, what John's about to let us know is that loving God and loving people made in his image becomes natural for those who are born of God. It, that kind of love is fitting for our identity as children of God. So if you wonder... How should a child of God function? If I'm born of the Spirit and I'm a child of God now, what is the appropriate way to live? Well, love should be a part of your life. 
but you don't get to just run around defining love um, however you want. John's going to define love biblically as the, as God does. But before we do, let's go to John 1.12. Speaking of being born of God, John mentions the new birth and he mentions being born again a lot more than the average biblical author. I'm not saying that you you won't find these concepts anywhere else in the New Testament, but John really, really, really focuses in on these ideas. So John wants us to know that um, the Christian life is not just about being saved from condemnation and, and hell and punishment and sin and death. It is mostly about having a living, abiding relationship with God and being born into his family through faith. And because I'm one of his family members now and I, and I belong to God as my father, salvation is my inheritance. Forgiveness is my inheritance. Freedom from sin and death is my inheritance. So John is mainly going to emphasize relationship above this, I don't know, plastic Americanized concept of salvation. Salvation is great, but salvation needs to be seen in light of having a relationship with God. He is ultimate. John 1.12, this is what John the Apostle says. To all who received him, who believed in his name. So what does it mean to receive Jesus? To believe in his name. To believe he is who he said he is. To believe he did what he said he did. And what the eyewitness testimony said he did. Which is that he lived, died, and resurrected for us. So to everyone who believes in the name of Jesus, he gives the right to become children of God who were born not of blood nor of the will of the flesh nor of the will of man but of God so to be born of God is to be a child of God because Jesus gives us the right to be a child of God he gives us that right we're not entitled to be children of God he gives us that privilege he extends to us that blessing and that opportunity. It's an honor. So John wants us to know that everyone who loves the Father because they're born of God is going to love who has been born of Him. Now this is not just talking about the children of God, but, and I don't want to go down this tangent too much, but I believe um, the whoever here does refer to the children of God, but it also applies firstly to the Son. Jesus is known as the only begotten son, the firstborn from the dead, the firstborn of all creation. Now that doesn't mean he's a created being. And I've spent episodes on episodes talking about that. But Jesus is uh, born from the dead, firstborn of creation, which refers to um, preeminence, which refers to him being the rightful heir. And so anyone that follows in his footsteps and believes in him will also become heirs of the inheritance the father has for his children and so this is yes about loving people made in the image of god loving children of god specifically but but i think it also has in mind that you love the son and when you love the son you're loving the father this is what jesus says all throughout the gospel of john if you reject the father you reject the son you reject the son you reject the father you don't have one without the other so the born-again experience will result in love for God and love for His people and love mainly directed toward the Savior, Jesus, which is reflected upon back to the Father, of course. So verse 2, 
It says, by this we know that we love the children of God. So those who are born of God are called children of God. How do we know we effectively love people? In other words, what does love look like? Well, he's already talked about how love looks like Jesus. Jesus is love personified. He lays down his life. He gives up himself for the benefit and the life of other people. So by this, we know that we are loving the children of God. When we love God and obey his commandments. John brings in this concept of obedience. The commandments of God are mainly to believe in the Son, as we've already seen throughout First John, to believe in the Son, and then to go and love God and people as a result of that faith. So faith happens in a moment where I confess Jesus as Lord, I believe in my heart that he's been raised from the dead, that he paid for my sins, and then that faith will be expressed throughout the lifetime of the individual. So faith might happen in a moment, but it will last a lifetime and it will be expressed through the life. So my life will bear witness to my faith. One of the ways that faith proves itself or manifests is by the fruit of obedience. The commandments of God, yes, to believe in the Son firstly. But now that I've come to believe in the Son, I will continue loving and believing in Christ by doing what he says. So this is not obey the commandments of God or obey the law to become saved. We never could. Jesus does that for us. He fulfills the law perfectly. He walks in perfect obedience to the Father, and he's the perfect human being we all failed to be, and we never could be in the first place. So now the, the idea of obeying the commandments of God is not to gain anything. It's because we are children of God. Like the proof that you're a child of God is that you seek to obey the commandments of God. So obedience to God provides the clear instruction on how to love people. If you're wondering, how do I practically love people? Well, there's instruction and there's wisdom in the Torah. There's instruction and wisdom in the commands and the laws of God. And those commands, as we're about to see in verse 3, aren't burdensome. Because our love for God, like if you really love Him, if you really belong to Him, that love is going to be expressed in obedience. It's a decision to love people made in His image by obeying the commandments of God. Look at how John connects obedience and loving people. How do you love God? Do what He says. This is what John 14, 15 says. Well, how do I love people? Well, you obey the commands of God. In other words... The, the laws of God outline for us how to practically love people. If you want instruction and if you want an example for how to love people, just ask God in his, in his word. He'll give you clear instruction. John 14, 15, Jesus says in the upper room, look, if, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Now, he's not talking about perfect obedience, consistent obedience, where you never fail and you never make a mistake. He did that for us. So the burden is off of me to try and do that. But I am pursuing Jesus who is perfect. I am aiming for perfection. I am desiring to be more holy. And as I walk with Jesus, I will desire to keep his commandments. And if you don't, if there's no desire to obey or keep the commandments of God... You have to ask yourself, do you really love God? If, if throughout your life there is zero desire to honor God and keep his commandments and obey his laws and you don't care about honoring him, 
at all throughout the rest of your life, you really have to ask yourself, do I truly believe and love God like I think? Jesus says, keeping the commandments of God, keeping watch over that, pursuing that, desiring to obey those in honor of God, that becomes proof of your faith and love for Jesus. And so here's what, we go back to 1 John, um, and he connects this idea of love looks like obeying God. There's a very practical way to love God. In other words, here's how I know I'm really loving the Father or loving people. Am I walking in alignment with his commandments? Are his laws leading my life and my decisions? If they're not, and if I'm violating his law, then I'm violating, okay, then I'm violating the law of love. You're never walking in love while disobeying God and violating his laws. The, the two are, those are two contradictory ideas. I love God and people, but you live in sin, but you live outside of his law like you're some outlaw where the law of God doesn't apply to you. You're violating the very concept and idea of love expressed in the commandments. Don't murder people. Don't lie. Don't cheat. Don't steal. Don't commit adultery. Don't lust after your neighbor. Don't covet. All these different things. The wisdom of the law is to guide us into love for each other. It leads us into the fullest life. It leads us into the fullest experience. And I'm not saying you obtain eternal life by obeying. I'm saying now that I'm in eternal life through Christ, now that I have a relationship with God to live the fullest life this side of heaven and to, to get the most out of this beautiful life God has given me this side of heaven, I'm going to walk in his commandments and let him lead me into the best possible life by his commandments. And the very first command is to believe in the son. And so the reason I read that verse up front, which is, hey, there's a sin that leads to death and there's a sin that doesn't. The reason I read that up front is to let you know everything that leads up to that is going to give us clarity on what's that, what that's saying. And so far, John has talked about, look, you're born of God or you're not. You love God and his people or you don't. You walk in his commandments or you don't. It's pretty black and white. Second John 6, John also in his second letter says, look, this is love that we walk according to his commandments. Walking is not just like going on a walk to the park. It's living. It's your lifestyle and the majority of how you function as a human. How do you interact with people? How do you talk to people? How do you use your mouth and your words and your speech? How do you use the body God has given you? Where do you go? What do you watch? What are you listening to? All these different things. What do you meditate on? What are you engaging in? Your life should be aimed at the perfect life of Jesus. Meaning, I want my life to look like him. And guess what? He was the walking Torah. He's the walking, he's the personification of the very character and nature of God, which is expressed in the laws. So you can't disconnect the two. The commandments of God reveal to us the character and nature of God. So if Jesus is going to be God in the flesh, like he claims to be, like the eyewitness testimony says, then he will be the perfect substance of all commandments ever given. And this is the commandment, just as you've heard from the beginning, that you should walk in it. And guess what? The commandment is to love. The sum of the law and the prophets, the entirety of what God desires for us is love. Oops, we're not capable of loving perfectly. We don't meet the law of God and we don't meet his standard of perfection. So what do we do? 
if the command of God is something I can't attain and the law exposes my inability and my, my, my shortcomings, what do we do? Well, we look to the one who's done everything for us. We have hope in the one who's done everything that we never could. We look to Jesus for hope and salvation because he fulfilled the law. He walked perfectly in the commandments of God, never failed, never made a mistake, never sinned. Walked in perfect obedience to the cross, laid down his life, became sin who knew no sin, so that in the flesh of Jesus, sin is condemned on the cross. And he takes the very punishment for our crime upon himself in his flesh. Evil is punished instead of us. So the only way into perfect love and perfect fulfillment of God's law, the only way you meet God's standard is by Jesus who's met it for you and who invites you to come and participate with him and benefit from his sacrifice. That's the only way. The only way that you can meet the perfect law of God is by trusting in the son who's done it for you. No one else has. There's no one else that has ever existed or ever will that is perfect. Everyone has messed up. Everyone has failed. Everyone's made a mistake. Everyone's violated the law of God. So what do you do? You look to Jesus. And when you come to him in faith, okay, and you trust in him for righteousness, for salvation, as the only way into the kingdom, he literally makes you an entirely new creation. You're given a new heart. You're given a new mind. You're given a new identity, a new nature, a new essence. You become a child of God. So now you're fitted for a life of loving God and people. Now you're able to do it because you've trusted in the one who first loved you. And now you can have his love for both God and people. And so now I can go and love God from a place of knowing that I'm secure in Christ. And he makes it possible. He models love. He leads us into love. He lays down his life so that we can act effectively know what love looks like. This is who Jesus is. He lays down his life for our mistakes and sins. Verse 3 says, This is the love of God, that we keep His commandments. In other words, the way that you express love for God, again, is by simply desiring to walk in obedience to His commandments and doing them as best as you can. Not to be saved, not to stay saved, not because you're insecure about going to hell, but because you know you're secure and you're expressing your love for God in obedience. So when you love God as your father, you'll do what he says, not only because he's worthy, not only because you're responding to his love for you, but because you know that by walking in obedience to him, he's leading you into the fullest sense of life. And apart from him, you leading your own life, you won't fall in. You won't just wander into the fullest sense of life. You have to be led into that. Someone has to shepherd you into that. And that's who God is. So if you want to claim that you love God, but there's no obedience at all in your life, the, the commands and the laws of God don't affect your decisions, it never crosses your mind what honors Him, you really have to ask yourself and wonder, do I really love Him? Do I really believe? Because obedience will be evidence of true saving faith. And guess what? What's beautiful about the commandments of God is His commands... And now we're not just talking about believing. Now, let's assume now we've believed and we've entered into new life. Now the commands and the laws of God outline the best life for me. So when I walk according to his commandments, John wants you to know those laws aren't burdensome. The laws of God aren't restrictive. They're life-giving. 
They lead you into abundance. They're good. They lead you into a fuller sense of, of, of experiencing the blessings Christ has purchased for you to experience in this life. Joy, peace, hope, everything I have in Christ that becomes more a part of my experience as I walk in line with his commands. His commands aren't burdensome. This is not God locking you in a prison cell going, hey, I'm here to make your life terrible. I'm a buzzkill. I want your life to suck. So I'm giving you a ton of rules. It's, it's exactly what we do for our kids. When I tell my son not to do something, it's to preserve his life. When I tell my son to do something, it's to actually lead him into a fuller sense of life. Hey, buddy, don't touch the stove. It's going to hurt. Forget you, dad touches the stove. Ah, I tried to tell you, like I'm trying to protect you from you hurting yourself. And so instructions and laws actually lead us into a fuller sense of life. That's what God does. That's exactly what he does. Will you follow him as the good shepherd? When you see the commands of God as burdensome, you're already set up for failure. This is what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 11. He says, hey, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy burdened or laden, overwhelmed, exhausted, barely able to even lift a finger anymore. I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you like an oxen plowing the field, yoked up to another oxen. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and I am lowly in heart. And you will find rest for your souls. Every single person on the planet, whether they have the language for it or not, they're looking for soul level rest. Satisfaction, essentially wrapped up in love and being approved and wanted and accepted and loved by someone. The problem is you won't find rest for your soul anywhere else except at the feet of Jesus. You won't. You can achieve the perfect life. You can have the most amount of money anyone's ever made. You can have an empire. You can be the strongest person on the planet. You can be the most beautiful woman there is. You can, you can be a person that like is in charge of the entire world and have all the power there is. You can build your empire. You can be the greatest influencer. You can have all the money the world could ever imagine and all the sex there is to have. You'll never find rest for your soul outside of Christ. He offers us that for free. And he says, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Do you know why the commandments of God aren't burdensome? Assuming that you're in Christ, they're not burdensome because he's fulfilled the law for you. So I'm not obeying God to stay saved. I'm not obeying God to get into the kingdom and earn my salvation. I'm obeying him because I'm saved, because I'm a child of God, because I'm secure in the work of Jesus for me. And because I have rest for my soul, I can enjoy God and his presence by walking in his ways. So yeah, the commandments of God aren't burdensome. They lead you into full life. They, they protect you from danger and harm and pain and unnecessary tragedy and heartache. They lead you into a fuller sense of satisfaction. They keep you close to the Father so that there's more for you to enjoy about His presence rather than sinning and walking away from Him and going, where'd He go? He didn't go anywhere. You just wandered away and started living your own life. The commands of God aren't burdensome. They're life-giving. Jesus lifts the burden. And then He says, now come follow me. 
from a place of having fulfilled the law. We're not trying to become perfect. We never could be. Once you make a mistake, you can't become perfect because you've made a mistake. You can't overwrite the mistake you've made and go, oh, let me just try again. Nope, that's part of your life, man. But Jesus cleanses our souls, washes us clean, removes our past so that it no longer influences God's view of us. We're no longer stained by sin. And now he says, follow him into life by just walking with him. Now I get to enjoy God instead of working for him like some mob boss. And that's how some of you view God. You think he just like, he's waiting for you to reach a certain number and reach a certain number of days without sinning. And God's going, my son has been perfect in your place. Like you understand that, right? We're not trying to become perfect by obeying. We are perfect through grace. I, like in the sight of God, my sin has been washed away. He's gone. There's no darkness staining my soul anymore. I've been washed by the blood of the Lamb. So yeah, His commands aren't burdensome. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. Now, just track with the grammatical structure. Be a nerd for a second. Let me take you back to third grade. His, commandment, his commands aren't burdensome. For, or because, or here's the reason... Everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. That's interesting. John essentially says, hey, the commands of God, they're not burdensome. They're not restrictive. They're not keeping you from a great sense of life. Do you know why? Because we've already overcome the world through our faith. This is the victory that has overcome the world. Everyone who has been born of God has faith, right? That's assumed so you've overcome the world and you have victory. In other words, our ability to overcome death and sin and the world, that's not based on my own ability to obey. My obedience to God and my ability to do and perform and my efforts, none of that has any influence on whether or not I have victory over sin, death, and the devil. Because that victory isn't due to my own efforts. The, my victory over sin, death, and the devil, that's because of Jesus. That's not because of me. That's not because of you. That's not because of anything that we bring to the table. Right? So, the victory over the world and sin and death and the devil, that's a result of Jesus. Well, how do you experience that victory? How do you participate in the victory of Jesus? Well, he extends it to those who have faith. And Jesus says, you want to participate in my victory? Come and believe. Like, that's it. Have faith in me and then my victory becomes yours. And so victory is not achieved by us. It's achieved by Jesus and we rest in him. That's why the soul level rest we need is found in the victory of Jesus. Not in my own ability to obey the commands of God and, and walk in the light and do what he says. Those things are fruit and evidence. Those are the results of my faith. Not the reason that I'm saved or the root of my salvation. Faith is the way into victory. Not works. Not obedience. Not doing. Not my efforts. Not I've gone 11 days without looking at... It's not up to you. It's Jesus has done it all. So rest in him. And rest looks like trusting him enough to do what he says. And so we don't obey God and live, you know, this Christian life to obtain victory. 
We're like walking with him from a place of victory. We're obeying him and his commandments aren't burdensome because we're obeying him from a place of victory. We already have it. That's why they're not burdensome. That's, that's the grammatical structure John uses. Because everyone who's born of God overcomes the world. How? Through Christ. Through your faith. That's the way into the family of God is by believing. Right? So, so this is the victory that overcomes the world system. It's not me. It's not my efforts. It's not my education and my intellect and my own influence. It's Jesus. And I have faith in him, which makes his victory mine. So this is what 1 John 4, 4 says. If you scroll up a little, it says, little children, you are from God. Notice how victory and triumph is always connected to belonging to God. Little children, you are from God or you are born of God and you've overcome them. The Antichrist, the world system. He who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. Is that, is that right? Yeah, 100%. 100%. John 16, 33. Jesus says in the upper room, listen, I, I've said these things to you so that in me you can have peace. And I, I got to reference this verse every single time we open the scriptures because there's no way I can't connect this passage to whatever we're reading. I, I have to. In Jesus, you have peace. Not in your own efforts to obey, not in your own ability to lead Bible studies, not in your own ability to evangelize enough and reach enough people, then you can have peace. It's in Christ I have peace, then I get to work from a place of already having peace with God. So in the world you will have tribulation. That's unavoidable. Don't think Jesus is your way out of trouble and tribulation. He's your way out of sin and death and eternal separation from God for sure. But the temporary troubles of this life, he's not your way out of it. He's your, he's your refuge in it. Take heart, I've overcome the world. So that's interesting. In John's gospel, Jesus says, hey, I've overcome the world, right? First John chapter four, John says, we've overcome the world. How? Because we are in Christ and we have peace with God, regardless of what the world throws at me, regardless of the trouble and tribulation, regardless of the heartache and, and everything the world tries to bring against us, we have victory in Christ. Period. Period. We're not progressively obtaining it. We're not slowly achieving it. It is yours the very microsecond you respond in faith to the gospel. So 1 Corinthians fifteen fifty seven, Paul says, Thanks be to God who gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, as we make our way to the end of 1 John, where John's going to say, Look, there's sin that leads to death and there's sin that doesn't lead to death. You have to understand how he's building up to that. It's about victory, triumph. It's that Jesus has won. And so if you're on his side, you also have won. So we can praise God for the victory we already have through Jesus. In the midst of all the different things we're going through and even the times we slip up and fail and mess up, it doesn't reverse or change the work of Christ. Your own sin like, if I'm a believer and I struggle and I fall into sin, you didn't somehow reverse or change the work of Christ. 
he is still who he is. He's still done what he's done. And there's still, that's why First John opens with, we have an advocate when we do sin. Not to make grace a license to sin, but to let you know someone who truly believes and struggles and fights and gives in at times, their advocate still stands for them and with them. So, I've spent hours talking about all this stuff, so I won't go down that rabbit hole. But I will take you down to chapter 5. Okay, in this little section right here, he'll go on. Who is it that overcomes the world? Right here. Like if you're wondering who overcomes the darkness and evil and sin and death, well, it's the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. Notice how the biblical authors, John doesn't use the language of believe in Jesus. That doesn't mean that's wrong. I'm just saying he takes it a step further. And he tells you what to believe about Jesus. That he's the son of God. So when we say believe in Jesus, you have to make sure that you have an accurate view of who you're really responding to and trusting in. Is he the son of God? Is he God in the flesh? Is he the eternal word emanating from the Father? And it's not like I have to have all those ducks in a row before I can be saved. But if I, John says, he who denies that Jesus is the Christ or the Son of God, that's the spirit of Antichrist. John does say the spirit of Antichrist denies the humanity and the actual fleshly nature or the, the human nature rather of Jesus. So you do have to get both. He specifically says, you want to overcome the world with Jesus? You have to believe that Jesus is the Son of God. Amen? In, in these five verses, okay, one, two, three, four, five, just this little section right here. John is connecting all of these ideas, four ideas, love, obedience, victory, and faith. Now, we could do a whole study just on how all those ideas come together. But I just want you to see, okay? I just want you to see. Love, obedience, faith, and victory all come together. Which one precedes which? What's the order? We can have another discussion on that another day. I'm trying to get to the rest of John, 1 John 5. I just want you to see that ultimately all these things, the love, the obedience, the victory, the faith... It all comes together in this concept of being a child of God. A child of God, someone who's born of God, born of the Spirit, has faith. They overcome the world. They will go in love and obey. Verse 6. This is he who came by water and blood. Who? Who is he who came by water and blood? And what does that mean? Well... Those who come by water, or he who came by water and blood, seems to refer to the actual human birth of Jesus. Uh, you can point to the cross and say that there was almost the, the way Jesus exited the world, or even like when he was on the cross and the spear went into his side and blood and water came out, was that, what are we to think about that, okay? What are we to think about that? I think John will... Give us some clarity on that. But the point is, Jesus was actually born of a woman. Don't deny his human nature. Don't deny the fact that Jesus actually came and took on flesh and became one of us. 
he really came by water and blood. The, the woman fluids. <laughs> Jesus Christ, not by the water only, but by the water and the blood. John loves to emphasize, in a unique way again, water and blood. That Read his gospel. I mean, he's the only gospel writer that has the story of the, the, the wine being, uh, water being turned into wine at Cana, uh, the woman at the well. There's intentional, John is very intentional about drawing out the, the symbolism behind water and blood and how that applies to the believer and how Jesus is, you know, the, the, the substance of that and how he washes us. Water and blood are all over his gospel. And the spirit, okay, the Spirit is the one who testifies. You have to understand what John has been doing this whole letter and what he does throughout the rest of his letters and the gospel he wrote is he's just testifying. It's like he's in a courtroom and he's an eyewitness of something that's happened. That's why he opens First John by saying, look, we have seen, we have touched, we have experienced. Right here. That which we heard, that which was from the beginning, we've heard, we've seen. He's one among many eyewitnesses. We've looked upon, we've touched the word of life. He was manifest among us. We're testifying, like in a courtroom, we're proclaiming to you the eternal life, which was with the Father, Jesus, the substance of life. I think what the tree of life represents ultimately is Christ, who is our life. And so John is just testifying. That's all he's doing. And he's bringing in as many witnesses as he can to the life, death, resurrection, and ascension of Christ. And he's going to look, the Spirit also testifies. He's the one who testifies because the Spirit is the truth. In John 15, 26, um, upper room just correlates very well with this. When the Helper comes, this is Jesus in the upper room, okay, before he's about to go to the cross. When the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the spirit of truth who proceeds from the father, he will bear witness about me. You also will bear witness because you've been with me from the beginning. In other words, the, the testimony of the spirit, which right now in this moment in John 15, the spirit of God has not yet indwelt the apostles. They have not yet been filled with the spirit indwelt to become the living temple of God. That hasn't happened. Day of Pentecost hasn't come yet. Okay. So they are listening to this as apostles who have just been watching and hearing Jesus for three and a half years. They don't have the spirit yet. Jesus says, look, the spirit essentially is going to bear witness about me. And then you will bear witness because the spirit of God is going to indwell you. In other words, the, the, the witness of the spirit becomes our own witness. That's why your life should be witness to your faith. Because the spirit of God won't remain like hidden in your life. I just don't want you to see me. He's going to bear fruit in your life. He's going to make himself known. He's going to reveal himself through you to testify to the life, death, and resurrection and the gospel. So we become living testimonies and witnesses of the gospel with our life because of the spirit who is the true testimony. He dwells within us. So there are three that testify. The spirit, the water, and the blood. These Three agree. These three agree. Um, I just thought of something. I believe the King James Version says something quite different. 
there are three that bear record in heaven or bear witness. The Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost. These three are one. Now I'm no Greek scholar, so I don't know what manuscripts are saying what and which ones they're actually pulling from here. And I don't, I don't know if the Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost is a forced translation on the part of the King James, or if that's accurate. I don't know. I haven't done the research. But the King James does translate it like that, so I just want to be transparent. I don't know why. The ESV, the one I'm using, it says the Spirit, the water, and the blood. Um, so I don't know how that would get translated Father, Son, or Father, Word, and Spirit. These three agree. I guess that would be consistent with John's gospel, how Jesus will say, look, the Father testifies of me. The Spirit testifies by his works or the Father's works. I'm here testifying of who who I am and where I've come from and what I've seen. So maybe there's consistency there. But right here, I mean, the, the fact that he's been talking about water and blood and then the King James just kind of shifts it to, to word, Father and Spirit. Just Maybe it's a little forced. Uh, I'm no Greek scholar. But the point is, I, I don't necessarily know what the water and blood are here. There are views. There is the fact that Jesus was born of water and blood. Think of his incarnation. He was born of the woman that came with all the embryonic fluids. So water and blood came out with Jesus out of the Virgin Mary. Um, the water and blood could refer to John accounts of the fact that the, the spear went to the side of Jesus when he's hanging on the cross after he dies and yields up his spirit, the Roman soldier takes a spear, shoves it in the side of Jesus, and water and blood come pouring out. That could be what John is referring to as well, that because that was a sort of testimony um, to Jesus. Um, maybe it's both. Maybe the water and the blood refers to the cleansing nature of of the water is, or the word of God is compared to water in John's gospel. The water, the word of God washes, cleanses the disciples and the blood also, the blood of Jesus cleanses of sin. So, I mean, there, there are several views you can take. I don't know, really know which one is which or which one is more true to this. Maybe all three are correct. Maybe John, this is a multidimensional statement or he's thinking of the actual human nature and then how Jesus dying, blood and water poured out somehow, you know, it's testifying to his actual physical death. And then he resurrects three days later. And so there becomes this cleansing, you know, washing dimension of now the water uh, of the word and the blood of Jesus actually cleanses the soul of a person. Maybe all those come together. Maybe this is has Levitical uh, priesthood kind of symbology behind it. The same way you would, there'd be Levitical washings and blood would be involved. And there was actually a, a cleansing dimension behind blood in the Old Testament Levitical you know, sacrifices. So I don't know. The point is whatever this, the water and the blood are and the spirit, they agree. And these three, they testify. They testify. If we receive the testimony of men, then the testimony of God is greater. This is the testimony of God that he's born concerning his son. So this, these three that agree, just trying to make sense of this real time here, the spirit, the water, and the blood, right? This is the testimony of God that he's born concerning his son. Maybe water baptism is in mind. Maybe the Mount of Transfiguration where the father actually declares, this is my son, twice. Remember that? 
And so God bears witness about his son. Jesus bears witness about himself. The spirit bears witness through the signs and the works and, and all that's done. So maybe the King James is on to something by saying the word, the father and the spirit. Either way, this is the testimony of God. He's born of, of his son. There's a, there's a validating hand coming on Jesus from the father. And John is just kind of doing the same, man. He's going, look, we've seen him. We, we looked at him. He's real. He actually ascended. He actually resurrected. We, we saw his resurrected body. Freaked us out, man. Freaked us out. Just showed up in our house when the doors were locked. Didn't invite him in. Just kind of waltzed on in. Verse 10 says, Whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. So, you know, if these three testify, and this is the testimony of God, mainly the Holy Spirit, because right here, the Spirit is the one who testifies. And maybe the Spirit of God testifies by the water, by the blood. But the point is, if you believe in Christ and you believe the testimony of God about His Son, that He is the Son of God, that He is God in the flesh, that He is the eternal Word emanating from the Father, well, now you have the testimony of the Spirit in yourself. And now God makes you a witness to the resurrection. Not that you had a first-hand eyewitness experience you know, there, but... You now, your life, your changed life will now be witness to the, to the gospel and the Savior you serve. Whoever doesn't believe God has made him a liar. So as, as we start to move into the sin that leads to death and the sin that does not lead to death, John, throughout this whole letter, has made two very clear categories. The darkness, the light. Those who don't believe, those who do. The children of the devil, the children of God. Those who obey the commands of God, those who keep on sinning. You know, there are two clear, very clear categories. And now he's getting even more direct. Whoever does not believe God and the testimony he's born about his son has made God a liar because he's not believed in the testimony God has born concerning his son. But if you do believe, well, then you will have the testimony of the spirit in yourself. So... Verse 11, and this is the testimony God gave us, eternal life. And this life, it's in his son. So John is, again, uh, starting to close his letter by kind of recapping some ideas and just being really direct with his statements now. Look, the life you and I desperately need is found nowhere but in Christ. And the only way for you to experience that is to believe the testimony that God has borne of His Son, that Jesus is the Son of God, that He really is God in the flesh, the Christ, the only true Messiah. He's the only anointed one that is to come and bring salvation to the world. He's the only true King of Kings. He's all these different things. But no matter what, do you believe that He came in the flesh and that He was from God as the Son of God? When you believe that testimony, guess what? You have the testimony, you have life, and here's why it's so important to understand this eternal life is in his son. When John closes his letter, he'll say God is eternal life, or eternal life is, is God. I forget which one. Uh, it's right here. He is the true God and eternal life. Referring to the son Jesus. So not only does Jesus offer life, not only is life in him, like he's the bread that's broken so we can partake and enjoy or you know, benefit from his life, but he is the substance of life. Uh, for John 1.4, that's a good verse to go to. 
John 1.4 says, In him was life, Jesus. And the life was the light of men. In other words, the life of Jesus becomes symbolic of the light that shines in the darkness, like a flashlight. 1 John 2.25 says, This is the promise he made to us, eternal life, when you abide in the Son through faith. 1 John 4.9, I know I'm jumping around here. In this the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him. So God sends his Son with a purpose. It's so that we can live through him. Because God promises, listen, if you want eternal life, it's in my Son. Period. Period. There's, there's no life outside of God. There's existence. There's this idea of people are spiritually dead, but maybe they're physically alive on the earth. Outside of God, when you're in exile, there's nothing but death. So to come into life is to come into a relationship with God himself through his son. That's why life is in his son. Because Jesus is eternal life incarnate, embodied, life personified among men. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. This is important. Because John is going to say there's a sin that leads to death. Death and life are opposites. So if I have the Son, I have life. Not I will have life. Not eventually. Not some progressive thing. I have life now in the Son, if I believe. If I don't, I do not have life. Period. So you either have life or you don't, right? You're either spiritually alive or you're not. John 3.15 says, Whoever believes in the Son of Man may have eternal life. Notice how life is connected to believing, trusting in Jesus. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. You see how John's going to repeat this theme all throughout even his gospel? Whoever does not obey the Son, now that's interesting, Believing in the Son is communicated essentially as obeying the Son. Because believing and not obeying are contrasted. Do you see it? You either believe in the Son and you have life, or you don't obey the Son and you don't have life. So you're like, where did obedience come from? To believe in Jesus is to obey the gospel. When you hear the message and the testimony of God about His Son, repent, turn from your sins, believe, turn to the living God. You're believing and trusting in that message about the Son for salvation. And if you don't obey it or believe it, you won't see life. And this is really key. If you don't believe in the Son or obey the Son's, you know, the gospel, you will not see life. Hmm. But the wrath of God remains on him. In other words, they are under the death sentence. The death penalty. They are in death. That's why I said, everyone that's walking around... This world is either in death or in life. John 5.24 says, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes. So is it just about hearing and knowing intellectually? No. It's about believing as a result of that knowledge. And when you believe him who sent me, Jesus says, you have eternal life. So whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me, 
to, to believe the word of Christ and the testimony of the gospel is to believe the Father who has validated the Son. And if you believe, you have eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Do you see how life is not, um, it's not some object to possess. It, like it's, it's, a, it's, an ex, it's a life experience. It's a reality to be immersed into. You're either in life, and, and yes, the language is you have life, but not as some object. Like I, I hold with my hand because God is life. So the only way to have life is to be in God through Christ, through my faith. That's why there's this language of we are in Christ, Christ is in us, and he's in the Father. It's this beautiful relationship where we are united with God through his Son. And you have life as a, as, as a result of that because you're connected to the one who is life. The life is an experience. Like I am in life right now because I'm in the Son. It's a reality. It's a mode of existence. Okay? It's a mode of existing. Or you're in death and you're outside the Father, outside the Son, and um, you know, to use the language of Genesis, you're outside the Garden of Eden and the garden presence of God. John 6.40, it says, For this is the will of my Father. Everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him should have eternal life. And I'll raise Him up on the last day. That is the will of the Father. Wow. What does God will? He wills to give resurrection, eternal life to anyone who looks at the sun in faith. Think of the serpent in the wilderness, that bronze serpent, which signified judgment, uh, that was lifted on the, the wooden pole by Moses. And then everyone's getting bit by snakes because they're sinning. And that bite, the sting or poison of that bite um, is essentially removed by when people look to um, what God has provided through that symbolic image, which eventually would foreshadow Jesus being hung on the cross. And we look to him or we don't. That's simple. Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. The reason I bring in so many of these verses is to let you know Jesus is the substance of life. I mean, he is, he is the very definition of life itself. God is life. That is one of the ways he'll communicate his character is in those kinds of statements. If you're outside of him, if you don't have a relationship with God through the Son, you don't have life. But whoever has the Son has life. How do you have the Son? You believe in the Son. What do I believe about the Son? That He's the Son of God and that He really came in the flesh. That He lived the life you never could. That He paid your sin debt on the cross with His life. And that he, after dying, He resurrected three days later. And He's coming back. Verse 13 says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God. Now remember, the two categories... John is primarily working with, as we enter into this, there are those who have life and believe in the Son, and those who don't have life and they don't believe in the Son. I don't know why I did this with my fingers. So he's writing specifically to those who do believe, to those who have the, the Son, 
because they trust in the name of the Son of God. And name refers to the, the substance, the character, the entirety of a, of a being. So this is not just like the, the J-E-S-U-S, like the English word Jesus and the five letters and invoke that actual, that name, the assembly of those letters. This is the, the sum total character of God represented in Christ. Believe in his name. That you may know that you have eternal life. So why is John writing this? Why is, what is one of the reasons John is writing this letter? To let Christians know, saints, born again believers, that they have eternal life. Think about that. When we turn this letter into a fear tactic, kind of guilt tripping people into being terrified of hell and really make sure you're, you're, you're not, you're not, uh, you know, I don't know. We, we, we can twist this passage into something it's not meant to be in this whole letter, essentially. John makes it very clear. One of the reasons he's writing this letter to the, the believers is to let them know you have eternal life. He wants them to have confidence. He wants us to have boldness. If you belong to him and you believe in him and there's evidence of faith and you are, uh, you know, and you have eternal life, you can know, you can know. This is the confidence that we have toward him. That if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. This is not John saying that God is only aware of certain things, only only hears certain things. This is an action word, like God listening with the intent to act and respond and answer. God answers, right, the requests we bring when we pray according to his will. So that's the confidence we have toward him. This seems to be a level beyond. There are Christians who aren't confident. Like, let's just break this down as simply as we can. There are a lot of people who are going to watch this. You're a believer. You're born again. There's evidence of faith in your life. But you're not confident you're really getting, in, getting into heaven. And I don't know how those two ideas at all coexist. I don't even know how it's possible. But you're a living testimony of that. Like you're born again. You know him. You see evidence in your life of his work. And, and there's just days where you're not confident. John wants us to grow past that. Where we're not questioning, I don't know, like, am I getting into the kingdom? But I'm so confident that I'm his, that I now have another level of confidence, which is, I know you're going to answer what I'm praying. Not because I'm in charge, not because I'm presumptive, not because I have an ego, or I'm worthy or deserving or entitled, but because I know your character, and I know what I'm asking in faith is according to your will. Like the, there's a there's a new level of confidence that God is trying to call believers into. And it requires you to get past that first step of not even being sure if you belong to him when it's like, "Bro, there's so much evidence. How how can you still be believing the lies of the enemy?" And maybe there's some truth. Some of you maybe don't belong to him. Maybe you should be reflective. Maybe you should take some time to self-reflect and, and look inwardly and really examine your understanding of Jesus and the gospel. Maybe that feeling is appropriate. That you would have a sense of, I don't know, I don't belong to him. Maybe that's true for some of you. But for some of you, it's not. You do belong to him. 
and that sense of fear, like, I don't know if I'm going to heaven, I'm terrified of going to hell, what if he changes his mind? That's not appropriate to the life you now have in Christ. What is appropriate and what's fitting is confidence. Not just confidence that I belong to him because my life bears witness, but confidence now in my prayer time where, yes, I belong to you, Father. We're beyond that. I'm not even questioning whether I belong to you. You are good and you're my Father. I have confidence that you're going to answer the request I'm bringing to you because I know your heart and your character. In other words, John wants us to move past the question of, do I belong to God? If you do, let's move past that into actually knowing God deeper to where we are confident of his heart. And, and if you're not there yet, and maybe you're a believer, maybe you're not, maybe you're self-deceived, maybe you know you're a fake. Regardless, it is always going to be pursue the living God and know him better and understand his character and his heart through his word in the gospel, in his son, and let that begin to have an effect on whatever level of confidence you don't have. So whatever we ask, according to his will, that's the key. The question is, I don't know how to like discern his will. How do I know what I'm praying for is his will? Conversation for another day. That's not what John is addressing. Just that if you know it's his will, you can have confidence. That's it. If we know he hears us in whatever we ask. There's like, there's levels of confidence. There are Christians who are barely confident that they belong to God. Then there are Christians who are like, I belong to him. He's so good to me. I know. I, in other words, they've spent enough time at the feet of Jesus to develop a new level of confidence that says, I know what I'm praying is your will because I'm so in tune with your heart and your word and your character. And this is not presumption. This is not whatever I think is what God wants. And I stamp his name on it. That's why I said this is a conversation for another day. I'm talking about how to discern the will of God in prayer and how do I know really what I'm asking for is his will. Another time. What John wants us to know is whatever, if we know he hears us in whatever we ask, then we know we have the requests we've asked of him. There's a specific request now that John is about to address. Okay? So, now that we're going to talk about the sin that doesn't lead to death, okay, let's highlight this. A sin not leading to death versus the sin that leads to death, okay? Think about all the ideas that have been put up front just in this chapter. If you have the Son, you have life. If you don't have the Son, you don't have life. If you're born of God, you will have the testimony in yourself. You'll see love and obedience as fruit of the faith you have, which is why you've overcome the world by the victory of Jesus. Think about all these ideas now as we get to this. If we know whatever we ask, we have, then, verse 16, what's the request that's mainly in mind here? Because remember, this is having a level of confidence that says, God, what I'm asking you for I believe you're going to give me. What does John have in mind? If anyone sees his brother 
committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask. Now I'm going to be open and upfront, as transparent as I can. I'm just going to give you several views on this passage. Okay, that's all I'm going to do. I'm going to let you think through it, let you pray, and come to your own conclusion. But I will present the views. View number one, this is a Christian, okay, who is, let's read the rest of the passage, then I'll give you the views. That seems wise. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask, and God will give him life. To those who commit sins that don't lead to death. There is a sin that leads to death. I don't say that one should pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin. Yeah. But there is sin that does not lead to death. Questions that we should be asking. Is this brother merely a fellow person, a fellow human being? Because the word brother can be used of just fellow human beings who aren't necessarily in Christ or believing, but they're, they're fellow mankind. So in that sense, they're brother or sister. Or is this a brother in Christ specifically who is a, of the same family and the same name that I have? In other words, is this a Christian? Second question, is this death physical or is it spiritual? Is he talking about a sin that leads to physical death or a sin that leads to spiritual death? This life, is it physical life God is giving a person? Maybe they died and they're coming back to life. Or is it spiritual life? These are questions we should ask. To be consistent with what John has previously said about life, it would make the most sense that the kind of life here, and, and let me just give you the views, and then I'll tell you what I think, okay? View number one. This is a person... Let's say, let's talk about a person who commits a sin that doesn't lead to death. Some people would say the sin here is a sin that ends their life. Okay. Um, a drug overdose. Uh, I don't know. Uh, in the middle of a, uh, uh, a theft and they end up getting shot or they end up driving off a bridge and trying to get away from the police. In other words, this is a sin that leads to physical, mortal death. Okay? That's one view. There's another view that says, no, this is a sin that actually leads to spiritual death. Spiritual death. Okay? So, within those two main views, there are sub-views. Meaning, let's just talk about the physical death aspect. Let's say, let's, let's imagine, okay? Let's hypothetically say, this is a sin that leads to physical death. This, this sin a person commits ends their life. Okay? That could be a believer or an unbeliever. Could it not? Can a believer do something dumb that is sinful, that actually causes the loss of their mortal temporary life? Sure. Sure. Doesn't mean they weren't saved. Um, can an unbeliever do the same? Sure. Now let's talk about spiritual death. Um... Will a Christian who is born again, alive in the spirit, I have eternal life right now, and um, I, I do something dumb, I sin, and it ends my physical life. Does that mean I've lost my spiritual life? Well, that, I guess that gets into soteriology and all that. But I would say no. No. I didn't lose my salvation because I, I ended my life doing something not, not wise that wasn't good. 
Um, I wasn't, maybe I wasn't living in sin. I just had a moment. I, I, I lapsed back into a previous addiction I had 10 years ago that I've broken. I've been free from. And that one lapse ended my life. And I, I've been a believer, you know. What do you do with that? Here's what I think. Those are all the views that I can think of. I should have written them down before we had this. Off the top of my head, that's really it. Physical death, spiritual death, Christian brother, normal brother. But if we're going to be consistent with what Jonas says has already said about life. This is not physical life. This is eternal life. So let's work our way backwards. This is someone who lacks spiritual eternal life. How do we know that? Because we are being called by John to ask God to give that person life. That doesn't seem to be a person who physically died and they were going, God, would you resurrect them? What's consistent with what John has said about life is it's spiritual eternal life in the sun. So, to work our way backwards, okay, this is us coming before God, praying, Lord, I pray that you would give them spiritual life in your son, eternal life in your son, because they lack it. They lack that life. Therefore, and again, I guess no matter what, we have to touch on the concept of, do you believe a person can lose their salvation, forfeit it, walk away from it, reject it, or do I believe a person will not because they're preserved by the grace of God? I believe that if you're a Christian... Like if you're born again in the spirit, you're a child of God right now, you will stay that way into eternity. Not a conversation for today. I Ask anyone in this chat. I've done hours, hours on the subject. Go check it out on my YouTube channel. So not the conversation for today. But from my viewpoint, okay, I've just given you some things to think about. If this is spiritual life, which seems consistent, the person lacks spiritual life, this person seems to be an unbeliever. This is a fellow man, fellow person, fellow brother or sister who is made in the image of God just like me. And maybe they haven't committed a sin that leads to death. Now let's think about this. If we are praying that God would give life to a person who has not committed a sin that leads to death, that assumes they're still alive. To have life, right? They're still physically alive. So it makes sense that we're praying for someone that hasn't died. Most likely they're an unbeliever because they lack e eternal spiritual life, right? And they might be committing a sin or living in, in sin, but it hasn't ended their life yet. If they die in sin and they die in unbelief, then that sin does lead to death. So what I've done for you in purple is I've highlighted any instance of the sin that does not lead to death. So we have to ask, what is the sin that doesn't lead to death? Well... Sin that doesn't lead to death seems to be sin that Christ has paid for. That actually has benefited the individual. If you go back to chapter 1 and chapter 2 of 1 John, G John talks a lot about how we have an advocate. In fact, let me read you a few verses that will ring the bell a bit for you. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and he's just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. The blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin. So is there sin that does not result in spiritual death? Yes, it's the sin that Christ has personally paid for. John talks about how he's paid for the sins of the whole world, right? But you don't benefit from his sacrifice unless you have faith. So the payment Jesus brings to the Father for sin doesn't benefit me unless I look to him in faith. So if I'm a believer and I look to the Son and I trust in Him to bring the, 
to pay my debt. I have committed sin, but the sin I've committed doesn't lead to spiritual eternal death. So there is a sin that doesn't lead to spiritual death. It's the sin that Christ has personally paid for on behalf of the person that trusts in him. I mean, John will go on. It, listen, if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He's the payment in full for our sins, and not for ours only, also for the sins of the whole world. So John has spent quite a bit of time already talking about how, look, if you've sinned, run to Jesus for forgiveness. Trust in him. If you live in sin, you don't know him. Right? He's already said that. He's given us the categories for this. So this most consistently seems to be talking about a person, a brother, a fellow human who lacks eternal life. And they might be in sin, but it has yet to lead to physical death, ultimately spiritual death, right? And so if we pray for them, we pray and believe that God will give them life. This is the kind of faith and boldness a believer can have. Is God, I so believe, Nancy down the road, who's just a jerk. And honestly, I don't want to pray for her, but I care about her eternity. I really pray, Lord, that you would please spare her, that she would not die in her sins, that you would bring her into life. I believe John is giving us permission to have confidence, not presumption, not arrogance, but confidence that our good father will answer that request and lead her into life, whatever it takes. If he has to break her down, if he has to pull her legs out from under her, if he has to lead her into a, a, a kind of tragedy that really opens her mind up and causes her to see her, her own need for a savior, whatever it is, we believe that God will answer that. John does say, hey, there is sin that leads to death. I don't think we should pray for that. So let me ask you this. If this was, if the sin that leads to death uh, was anything except dying in unbelief, then, then here's essentially what you're saying. You're saying, because John says, don't pray for that. Well, hold on. Does God want us to pray for people that don't have life, that they would have life? He does. So what's the kind of prayer God doesn't want us to pray for? If there's a sin that leads to death and God says, or John says, I don't think you should pray for that. Well, then we have to ask, oh my gosh, like what sin is on the table that God doesn't want us to pray for? What sin leads to death? Here's what I would say. When someone dies, the ultimate sin is unbelief. The blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, which is an expression of a hard heart and unbelief, okay? The root of that blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, the unforgivable sin, the root of that is unbelief and rebellion, rejection of God and His gospel and His salvation. You've rejected it in your heart. If you die in that, well, that you have died physically, but also you've entered into spiritual death. You've, you've sealed your separation from God. Now you are eternally separated from him because you died in unbelief. I think that is what John is saying not to pray for. When someone dies in unbelief, my prayers no longer do anything for them. They have made their decision. But as long as they're alive and still breathing, technically, they have not committed a sin that has led to physical death and sealed them in spiritual death so I can keep praying for them as long as they're alive. I know some people would, would read this a little differently. That, that just seems to make the most sense to me. If you go to Jeremiah, the prophet, this is what God tells Jeremiah. 
God has decided what he's going to do to Israel. Okay. If we say the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, someone being alive and committing blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, we shouldn't pray that God should forgive them or give them eternal life. That doesn't, that seems wrong because I know lots of people who used to blaspheme the Holy Spirit in Jesus and now they're believers. Now they're believers. So apparently just saying something wrong doesn't mean you're eternally screwed. Uh, what it means is right now you're in unbelief and you need to come into faith and we need to pray for that person. But so if we're going to say, well, you know, we shouldn't pray for people who have already decided to never believe. Really? You shouldn't? I want you to think about that. Think about people who you know. You're like, you're like very certain they'll never believe. They've told you time and time again, I want you to know I will never believe. I have made my decision. I reject gospel, the gospel. I reject God. I reject Jesus. I want nothing to do with him. Imagine that person in your mind right now who has said that and you go, wow, they're never going to believe. So that means we should stop praying for them because they've committed the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, which is what people think is just saying something instead of like dying in unbelief, which seems to be the main thing is unbelief and rebellion and you dying in that. That's the unforgivable sin. Because guess what God won't forgive or can't forgive? Unbelief. I think we should pray for people who we're looking at them and we're going, that's the hardest heart ever. There's no way God's going to break through to that. Really? What about Saul on the road to Damascus? What about countless people in, throughout human history who have been so vehemently against God, aggressively, violently against his kingdom, and then they come to faith? So we shouldn't pray for people who are in strong unbelief? No, we should. We should. But in Jeremiah, God has already decided what he's going to do to the nation. And he tells Jeremiah this, hey, don't pray for this people. Which seems to be, God is telling Jeremiah, don't pray for their salvation, for them to be spared from this judgment, because it's coming. Don't lift up a cry or a prayer for them. Do not intercede with me. I will not hear you. Do you hear what he said? God tells Jeremiah, like the good loving father that we serve, he tells Jeremiah, don't pray for them. Why? He's given Israel chance after chance. This is not talking about eternal spiritual death. This is talking about, hey, God is sending a nation to bring judgment on his people. And that has already been set in motion. God has made his decision. It's the consequence of their own iniquity. Jeremiah can pray all he wants. And God says, actually, don't. Because I've already made up my mind. And judgment is coming. They can't escape it. That doesn't seem to be speaking of an eternal destiny. But rather the... The judgment coming upon Israel, which by the way, people die. People do die in unbelief and in blasphemy, in rejection of the God of Israel for sure. But God is saying, don't pray that I would spare them from this judgment. It is the necessary consequence for their sin. It is the natural thing that's going to happen for their rebellion. Jeremiah 14, the Lord says, don't pray for the welfare of this people. Even though they fast, I won't hear their cry. Even though they burnt, offer burnt offerings and grain offerings, I won't accept them. I will consume them by the sword, by famine, and by pestilence. 
So God is telling Jeremiah not to pray for something particular, for a particular group of people. Because Jeremiah, the heart of Jeremiah, the weeping prophet, is to go, Lord, please bring them into welfare. Stop this judgment. And God's saying, don't. I've already made up my, my decision, made up my mind. It's going to happen. And no prayer can stop it. So I think there is some truth to the fact that when someone dies in unbelief, God's decision has been made. The verdict has been declared eternally over that person and nothing's going to change that. Don't pray for that anymore. It's already finished. Because maybe there's a tendency in the early church to spend a lot of their prayer time praying for people who are already dead, who didn't believe, and maybe that's just a waste of breath. So I think we shouldn't pray for people who are gone, who died in unbelief. What, what do our prayers do now? The decision has been made. The verdict has been declared. God has made his decision. And they've sealed themselves up, either in unbelief and rebellion or in faith in Christ. But either way, my, my, my faith and my prayers won't change their eternal experience and destiny. They're already gone. So I think that's more consistent with what John is saying. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is sin that does not lead to death. What is the sin that doesn't lead to death? Again, the sin that has been atoned for by Jesus and on behalf of the person who believes. Listen, we know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning. So the, the person that, um, that committed sin leading to death Seems to be a person who kept on sinning right into the grave. But if you're born of God, that won't be your lifestyle. He who is born of God protects him. And the evil one doesn't touch him. Now, he who was born of God here, I used to think, okay, I used to think this is about Christians having a protective role in the life of their brothers and sisters like god has ordained that i'm in my brother or sister's life and so he's going to protect them from from the evil one through me maybe there's a there's a layer of truth to that but i think more consistently the one who's in mind here is jesus because again i'm not saying jesus is created was he born into the world yes by blood and water was he the firstborn from the dead yes See, the firstborn overall creation in an inheritance kind of airship kind of way? Yeah, not in a creation way. So Jesus here, I, th I think it's more appropriate to say that the one who is born of God here is Jesus. And he protects who? Those who are born of God. So here's one category, the children of God who are ultimately protected by the firstborn, true, only begotten son of God himself. He protects us. And the evil one doesn't touch him. So do you see why I have a theology that says a true born-again believer will never end up in a lifestyle of habitual sin? Do you, do you see where I get that theology? Because you can say, okay, well, maybe that's not Jesus. Okay, either way, it's God protecting him and the evil one not touching that person. But in what, what way? Well, in the way where they end up in habitual, unrepentant sin as a way of life. That's not going to happen. That's not going to happen. 
And I think it's more consistent to say that's Jesus doing the protecting. But maybe some of that protection comes through the church. Like a true believer who's like, just other believers around them safeguard them from ending up in a life of sin. And God's always sending conviction and correction and discipline and the necessary encouragement. Either way, the evil one doesn't touch a child of God. In what way? Well, in a way where they will end up in unbelief, rejection of the gospel, living in sin. The evil one can't reverse or change what Jesus has ultimately given us and done for us. He can't. He can't touch us. If you're a child of God, that doesn't mean you can't be tempted. It means any failure on your part, any mistake on your part, doesn't end in eternal destruction and separation from God. Jesus protects us. And again, I hate that I have to preface this. Grace is not a license to sin. I said it. There, don't sound by what I just said before that. Grace is not a license to sin. We know that we are from God. And the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. So look at the contrast. Those who don't belong to God are already under the power of Satan and the kingdom of darkness. Those who are from God and are children of God cannot be touched in an eternal sense by the evil one. We're not under his power anymore. We're in the victory of Jesus over the enemy. So we have victory over him. So look at verse 20. We know that the Son of God has come. Do you believe that? We know that the Son of God has come. And guess what he's done? He's given us understanding. So that we may know him. That's interesting. Know him who is true. This sounds like John 17, 3. This is eternal life, that they would know you. Jesus is praying the high priestly prayer to the Father. This is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. It seems like the knowing here is intimacy, friendship, union. Like where I have a living relationship and friendship with someone in an experiential way. That kind of intimate, familiar knowledge comes from understanding okay so to know that the son of god has come and to believe in the testimony of christ is to be given understanding right which will lead us into an intimate relationship with god and we are in him who is true it's not just that hey god sent you a friend request on facebook it's not just like, hey, God follows you on Instagram. It's like God has taken up residency, not in a restrictive way, but he's filled you with his very presence so that we are now the temple and we are in his son, Jesus Christ. In other words, our entire mode of existence and reality is that I am in Christ and he is in me. That's eternal life. Now watch, look at how John ends his letter. Who's the last person that was talked about? In the previous sentence, Jesus. Okay, what does John say about Jesus? He is the true God and the eternal life. 
Little children, keep yourselves from idols. If that's not a cliffhanger, bro, I don't know what is. You you just ended your whole letter. But like there has to be more. What like what do you mean? Like I understand the instruction, keep yourselves from idols. Why? What's going on in the early church? What am I prone to? In what ways do you mean keep yourselves from idols? Because that can manifest in a number of ways. It has to connect to the previous statement. You either believe that Jesus is who he said he is. The eternal word emanating from the Father. The eternal life. God in the flesh. Or you'll find yourself worshiping at the feet of nothing but an idol. You give your life either to the, the true historical biblical Jesus, the true God of Israel, Father, Son, Spirit, or, or you end up in a form of idolatry. And that can manifest in millions of different ways. In other words, everyone is worshiping something. Who does John want people to worship? Who is really worthy of our affection and devotion and worship? It's God. It's God. And guess what? Whoever the eternal life is, because I know you're saying, I don't think he's talking about Jesus here. This is an exclusive title. There's not two beings who are both eternal life. There's one being who is the substance of eternal life exclusively. Whoever he is, he's the true God. Okay. If you go to the very beginning of this letter, John opens up by talking about the word of life, Jesus. And the life, just like John chapter 1, the life was made manifest. And guess what John is proclaiming? Guess who he's testifying to as an eyewitness? He's proclaiming and testifying to the eternal life. And you go, yeah, that's God. Well, hold on. The eternal life, who is the word of life, who, by the way, is a person that you can interact with, he was with the Father and was made manifest to us. So whoever the eternal life is, the end of 1 John tells us that's God. The beginning of 1 John tells us he's with the Father. Which one is it? Have fun. Have fun with that. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. Like trust in who God has revealed himself to be. Trust in who he's revealed his son to be. I'm, all I'm doing is giving you the categories that the biblical authors give us. If he is the eternal life, personified the word of life, the one who is life. But that is an exclusive title rightly attributed only to God. Well, there, that's where John gets the category to open his gospel. In the beginning was the word. And the word was with God and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. So the word, the eternal life, the life, the light of the world. Um, the truth, all these different aspects of who Jesus is, both God yet alongside God. Have fun making sense of that the rest of your life. So again, 
he closes his letter by saying, keep yourselves from idols. What is so um, dangerous to us is that our hearts are idol factories. Bro, I can make an idol out of anything. I can bow down at the feet of anything. I can find myself worshiping at the feet of anything and make a God out of that and look to it as my hope and salvation. And John, why do you think he's given us the category of trust in the Son or live in idolatry? Because everyone is devoting their lives to something that they view as their God. Money, success, sex, influence, fame, power, video games, Netflix, relationships, your car, your every every year you got to get the brand new phone and you de- devote your life and your time and your energy and your money and your gifts to that thing. And you look to it as a source of hope and peace and joy and you are ultimately saying that is your God. So keep yourselves from idols because idolatry seems to be linked to unbelief. And rejection of the gospel and the true historical biblical Jesus. So, I'm not trying to start any arguments. All I'm trying to show you, okay, is that John has a unique, I wouldn't say unique, okay, has an explicitly clear category for who Jesus is. And what we're going to do, I was thinking about what books to go through. What Bible book to go through uh, next? Instead, what I want to do, okay, what I want to do is spend several weeks talking about who Jesus is. And this seems like an appropriate off-ramp into that. Perfect. Just right out of 1 John into who Jesus is. We're going to talk about how he is the life. He is the light. He is the truth. He is righteousness, he is salvation, he is peace, he is hope, he is wisdom, he is grace, he is power, he is love, he is redemption, he is holiness. And the central passage that will be at the center of that study, for those of you that want to go and study on your own, it's going to be 1 Corinthians one thirty-one. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. It's going to be the kind of focal point of our study over the next few weeks. But if you guys didn't know, this is Above Reproach Ministry. You can visit AboveReproachMinistry.com for everything that we have to offer. We have free devotional studies, free Bible study courses for those of you that want to learn how to read the Bible, free Bible study worksheets. Um, We have free Bible study workshops. We have an online church you can join on the Discord app. All this is on our website or if you're on YouTube in the description below. If you're on TikTok, it's on my profile in the link. You can get a copy of my book, Fruitful, right here. Fruitful is essentially, um, I use that word in a punny way. It's the essential keys for the most living the most abundant, satisfying Christian life this side of heaven. And it's right here. You can get it on Amazon. You can get it on my website. Um, that's the only thing that costs money. Everything else is completely free because of generous supporters like you. So if you want to join the mission, we're teaching people how to read the Bible so they can live and teach the Bible themselves. We're building the church, resourcing the church growing believers into the image of Christ, moving people towards Jesus, um, not us and our efforts, but God is working through our efforts to move people towards his son. So if you want to be a part of that, 
You can give one time um, uh, through debit or credit card. You can give through PayPal. You can give through Cash App or Venmo. Uh, through Patreon, when you sign up through Patreon, you get a bunch of exclusive benefits. And so if you want to be a monthly supporter, support for $4, $50. There's all kinds of unique benefits attached to each tier on Patreon. You can also grab yourself some church merch, Above Approach Apparel. Represent Jesus on your body. Get a coffee mug with our logo on it. Remind yourself that, hey, Above Approach Ministry, I should go watch their videos and join their church. All that stuff, all the, the, the funds that God brings in creates all this free content to everyone around the planet. Um, sustains my wife and two kids and I so that we have food on the table. <laughs> Keep the lights on. So uh, if you believe in what we're doing, um, this is my full-time job. This is all that I have, and I'm thankful for it. And I love you guys, so thank you for watching and listening. Um, we'll probably start our, our series on Wednesday or tomorrow called Jesus Is. Jesus Is. It's going to be all about who, not even just like characteristics like Jesus is this as an attribute or as an adjective, but Jesus is this as like an object. Like, a, like it's a subject description of Jesus. He is the light. He is salvation, right? It's taking a thing and saying this is who he is rather than an, an, uh, an adjective and saying he is merciful or he is um, kind. So hope you guys can join for that. And other than that, I think that's it. All right, guys. Keep moving towards Jesus because he is coming back. And we really want to be ready. All right.